Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. The Big Baboon. The Colossus. The Mauler. The Home Run King. The Sultan of Swat. The Caliph of Clout. The Wizard of Whack. The Rajah of Rap. The Wazir of Wham. The Mammoth of Maul. The Maharaja of Mash. The Bambino. The Bam. The Big Bam. The Behemoth of Bangs. Prince of Pounders. The Behemoth of Bash. The Caliph of Crash. The Wiz of an Ashen. The Babe. George Herman Ruth. Babe Ruth. All right, guys. So, as you know, we're talking about the Babe, Babe Ruth. When you think of him, what do you think of? When you think of Babe Ruth, what do you think of? Mm, home runs. Home runs. Got it. Baseball. The New York Yankees. The Boston Red Sox. Championships. Sandlot. <laughs> this is a good spot to his, put that in right his 1000 nicknames we just read <laughs> by the way those were all his real nicknames when he played baseball okay so so that's what comes to mind with baseball but him as a human being what do you think of oh uh holy donor is not the first thing that comes to my mind a lot of drinking cigars women partying way cars. too much food Eating too much. That's what I think of. That's what you think of? Well, yeah. you're not too far off. You know, we're doing Holy Donors. That's a podcast if you guys have forgotten why you're sitting here with me today. And before we go too much farther, uh, I want to throw out again, Ren is on the mic with us today. Howdy, guys. Thaddeus is, he is out. Back to this. We're here doing a podcast on Holy Donors. You know, and we're all here to tell stories of great people who have done great things but also have, have changed the world through their philanthropic giving. And Babe Ruth may not be one that would come to your mind. He comes with some baggage, mm. but you know, as it's our job to kind of take the stories that we can find and share. And if they, they reach a certain level of holiness slash donorness, we share their stories so that listeners can come together and judge for themselves, whether they, at the end of the episode, whether they are a holy donor or not. So I'm, I'm excited to share the story of Babe Ruth, a strong Catholic man, and tell a story of his life. Maybe some things that you guys as listeners or you all as co-hosts here may not actually know. Yeah, I think that we spent a lot of time talking about you know who we're going to cover on this show and Babe Ruth and whether that was, you know, he was worthy of being a spotlight on this show. And, you know, in season three, we did Catherine Drexel, right, who went from sort of holy to really holy, to really, really holy, you know? So there's no, it was hard to figure out, uh, it was hard to say that she was not a holy donor, right? It was pretty right. clear. This one, I think uh, we're going to have to dig a little bit to really uncover what it is that justifies whether Babe Ruth was a holy donor. But I'm eager, I'm up for the challenge, and I'm eager to learn along with you and uh, excited to tell the story. I'm excited to share it. Buckle Great. up. Great. So... Matt, where does it start? Where do you want to start with this? I think the obvious one is a little bit about his younger years. Great. Before we go on, one thing I do want to share about the babe, there's a lot that we know about him. You know, we can look back at birth certificates. We can look back at stories of his life. But then there's also quite a bit that is unknown about the babe. He didn't, he didn't talk about it. He didn't share about it in his lifetime. He just didn't open that book up. 
uh, and, and it wasn't documented, a right. lot of this. You know, we used a book called The Big Bam written by Lee Monville as kind of one of the big pieces we used to put together a lot of the research, especially through his baseball career. Mm-hmm. Uh, great book, but in it, he refers to parts of his life as being in the fog, and I think that's a perfect explanation of it. You know, we can see it, and there may be the outline of it, but we can't definitely tell what 100% of the truth is. Yeah. Well, certainly we know when he was born, right? Yeah, we absolutely do, which was February 6th, 1895. Wait a second. Normally on this show, the people that we talk about have multiple birthdays out there. (laughs) (laughs) It has happened a time or two. Yeah, Yeah. and you said certainly we know when he was born, and certainly we do know because we have his birth certificate. However, for the majority of his life, up until he was in his 40s, he thought he was born on February 7th, 1894. So he thought he was a year older than he actually was. Okay. Well, for 40 years of his life. So he was born to uh, his parents were George Herman Ruth Sr. He was George Herman Ruth Jr., of course. Uh, and his mother was Catherine Schamberger. His family, uh, specifically his dad, they were in taverns. So they owned multiple taverns throughout the city of Baltimore. They, they traveled around a lot. And uh, Catherine was pregnant most of the time. She had eight kids, two sets of twins, and six of the children, however, died when they were fairly young. Yeesh. Yeah. And she herself died at the age of 39. Oh, my gosh. So that's a lot of kids in a what short amount of time. What did she die of? On her death certificate, it actually stated that she died of exhaustion. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, which 39, eight kids, many of them died before... Yeah. When they were young, so there there had to have been exhaustion from that. And also on her death certificate, it listed her as a widow, uh, which was interesting because George Herman Sr. was alive at the time. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's a little odd, okay. too. So he was 17 when his mom died of exhaustion. He grew up in a neighborhood in Baltimore, Maryland called Pigtown. I know why it's called Pigtown. So apparently they used to run giant herds of pigs, uh, hundreds of pigs through the streets because there was a nearby stockyard. And so residents would literally open their windows, reach out and try to grab pigs that they could then cook up and eat. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's pretty much what you do now, right? In Oklahoma City? Uh, Not quite. Not quite. (laughs) No pig town. But uh, yeah, no pig town. Okay. You know, what's going to come next is, is again, in this fog that we were talking about, this kind of unknown, which is kind of the next step for Babe Ruth. You know, one story says, and this was Babe himself's story, was that he was a bad kid. Other stories say that they couldn't raise him. His parents couldn't raise Babe. Others say they wanted to give him a better life. Others go that a man shot off a gun in one of his father's taverns and uh, was told that this was no place for a little boy. Needless to say, though, when he was seven years old, he was loaded up on a streetcar with his dad, and they rode to St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys, where he dropped him off basically for the rest of his childhood. Even in his autobiography, he says that he was dragged to St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys, which is probably true. I mean, (laughs) if he needs to go to a school that is literally for incorrigible and vicious kids, then yeah, it's probably not a place that you... Jump on the streetcar and so you want to read the full name of the school that he was he was oh, sent to. Oh, yeah, I do. So the official name is St. Mary's Industrial School for Orphans, Delinquents, Incorrigible, and Wayward Boys. Sounds like a pleasant place to go to school. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah, it does. 
You know, I was looking for a description of what it was like at this time to go to this school. And the closest thing I f- could find was it looked like a maximum security prison. Yeah. So I want to go back real quick to his mom, Catherine. So he was seven when he gets sent to this boys' school, right? He's 17 when his mom dies. It's probably not a hard stretch to say he didn't really have a relationship with his mom, right? Yeah. It's interesting. In his autobiography, uh, he wrote two. He ghost wrote two. And in one of them, he doesn't even mention his parents at all. And then in the other one, he gets the name, the maiden name wrong for his mom. Yeah. So clearly he was kind of just a boy on the street. I mean, yeah. you know, didn't have that strong relationship with his parents. Right. Many of our other holy donors have. Right. You know, when we talk about this time when he was dropped off, that was it. He was dropped off at the school and he never went home until after he got out of the school when he was, when he was older, he was a young adult at the time. So it makes absolute sense that he, he wouldn't know his mom if she died when he was 17. You know, the stories go that he did have a relationship with his father later on, you know, as they, mm-hmm. as they could, but when he could leave and, and do that, but he didn't as a kid, he didn't have any relationships with anybody. He was the firstborn. They had only been married for seven months at the time. And like you said, she had eight children, but six of them died. And so she was pregnant and dealing with grief for much of his yeah. childhood. So, you know, by the time he was seven, uh, you know, he was kind of just a kid on the street looking for trouble and probably didn't have a hard time finding it. And it's interesting. You say two autobiographies, ghostwritten, and none of them mention his parents, or one of them doesn't even mention his parents, which is kind of a classic babe move where he just doesn't talk about the hard stuff. Mm. Okay. So he's in this maximum security prison, also known as St. Mary's Industrial School for Orphans, Delinquents, Incorrigibles, and Wayward Boys. Could you give us a sense of what this industrial school was like? Absolutely. They worked the kids. While they were there, they felt that hard work was good for them. The food that they ate, much of the time it was rotten. Lots of starches, very little milk, lots of oatmeal. Uh, Some of the kids even drank coffee. The food was served in wooden bowls and eaten with their hands, sometimes with a large wooden spoon. There was no talking in the dining room. It It wasn't a pleasant place to be a part of. The age of the boys was between 5 and 21. Yeah. So, I mean, you've got teenagers and young adults there with, I mean, kindergartners, little kids. So I'm sure that there was a lot of, it wasn't just the instructors and the headmasters that were inflicting punishment and consequences. It was probably a lot of that within the boys as well. Yeah. From the older wayward boys. Well, yeah. I mean, they're not there because they're kind and nurturing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the average stay at the school was two years. Wow. But Babe, of course, spent his entire childhood after the age of seven. He's an Uh, overachiever. (laughs) 800 youth participated there. More than half of them were remanded to the Institute by local and state courts. Their days were scheduled with military precision, and everything ran on a schedule. They'd wake up at 6 a.m., they'd go to bed at 8. Obedience was the number one virtue. Yeah, the brothers had a saying, and it was, idleness breeds trouble. So you keep them busy, you keep them on a rigorous schedule, and they don't have time to get in trouble. Yeah. So do you mean like religious brothers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Xavarians? Yep. You know, and the St. Mary's, just real quick on the St. Mary's Industrial School, we'll call it Smith's right now since it's a lot shorter than the other name, uh, giving it an acronym. Uh, Smith's was actually created by the Archbishop of Baltimore, Martin Spaulding, out of kind of necessity. So 
there were so many state-run orphanages that were full of Catholic children that were being sent off to Protestant or non-believing families. And he was worried that these kids would would go off and lose their faith. So he created Smith's, St. Mary's Industrial School, to kind of help fight this so that they had a place to go that was was Catholic. You know, we're talking about this kind of rough place to go to school, but it still was a faithful place. The Xavarians still did great things with their faith and taught the faith. We're going to learn about Brother Matthias here in a minute, but they were solid in their faith. And this is where Babe found his faith was at this time. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Two other points that I saw just about, you know, how tough it was is that he was released a number of times, you know, talk about it being prison. He was released from the school a number of times, but every time was brought, ended up trying regular school and being brought back to the school by truancy officers. Hmm. And then after his mother died in 19, around 1910, he actually never had another visitor the rest of the time that he was there. So he was really looking for something to dive into and really spend, uh, you know, invest his time and energy and focus into because you got to imagine that it's pretty lonely there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of lonely, it's easy to get lost in the crowd. You know, we said 800 students, but the classes were full of 40 to 50 students per one Zavarian brother. So it was easy to get lost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked about punishment and one, one story goes how laying a kid over their lap with a good whooping was a regular ordeal there. Uh, another one goes where, and this was one of their favorite punishments, was telling a disobeying boy to collect a pile of 10,000 stones or little rocks out in the parking lot. Oh my um, and if the brother felt that he didn't collect 10,000, he'd kick it over and tell him to do it again, mm. which made sure that the next time they would get 10,000 rocks. So before we go on, I, one more point that I want to make is that you know, the age was 5 to 21, and we know that Babe was there until he was 17. And so I got to imagine, especially knowing what we know later in life, is that in many ways, as a, you know, as a teenager, he probably felt pretty protective of some of the younger boys that were there. And, you know, especially when he's not getting attention from his, you know, his mother passes away, he doesn't have visitors, he's, he's lonely. You know, I would imagine there's a part of him that is empathetic towards some of these younger boys and really kind of takes them under his wing, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we talk about him being lonely and empathetic, but he also didn't have anything to his name. You know, he didn't have anything really of his own. He may have his clothes that he wore, but he didn't have uh, he didn't have much, if anything. And as far as food went, he again it was rotten food. He didn't he didn't have a well-balanced meal. Food was scarce and hard to come by, and he was a big kid. Yeah. Needless to say, all of this put together, it was it was a rough way to grow up. Yeah. But there really was one person in Babe's life that really kind of took him under his wing and became a hero to Babe. Yeah, who was that? His name was Brother Matthias Boulier. He was a charismatic character from Nova Scotia. He was a prefect of discipline, so I'm sure he was the one whooping kids and making them get stones yeah. and piling that. He was probably the one doing the kicking. I'm guessing he was an imposing guy if he had that job. Uh, he was. Six foot six, 300 pounds. He was so big they took the door and put it on the outside of the hinges just to be able to fit his bed into his bedroom. I mean, he was a big guy. Yeah. Really was. And so he took Babe under, under his wing, and he was the one who brought the game baseball to the legend of Babe Ruth. I mean, he was the one. Brother Matthias Boulier. 
Did I say that right? You nailed it. Thank you. <laughs> he was the one. So he is eventually he's going to change the way of baseball to what we know of today. It was because of this man right here. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, we talked about idleness breeds trouble. So the Zaverians, this was a pretty common thing. You know, they had school, they had training, they had prayer, they had work, and they had play. And so they needed to fill a full day every day for these young boys. And, uh, you know, they worked, uh, I think you said 6.30 a.m. was breakfast and 8.30 in bed, and then they read until lights out at 9.30. So sport, baseball, as the you know most popular game of the day, was probably something that they put a lot of boys into, right? Yeah, they all played. Mm-hmm. That was their relief from what they were living in at the time. Mm-hmm. And Brother Matthias was the one who brought it to all the boys. You know, and just to take this one step further, because I'm not going to talk about how bad of a driver Babe Ruth was, uh, but he was a bad driver. But I do want to point out that when Bay, in 1926, Babe Ruth bought uh, Brother Matthias a Cadillac, a brand new Cadillac. Oh my gosh. Right. And then a few months later, he bought him another Cadillac. Uh, the reason for it was he actually got it stalled on a railroad track and it got hit by a train <laughs> and completely totaled. Um, so I think one other common thing, you know, they both were big imposing men. They mm-hmm. both played baseball and were big hitters, but they also were not very uh, lucky or conscientious of the cars because they was in numerous, numerous car accidents. Well, but we digress. Yeah. Okay, here we go. There's a great story about Babe playing baseball as a young kid. So he comes up with all of his, uh, from his team, playing another kind of inner Smith's St. Mary's Industrial School game. And he comes up to bat and the pitcher takes the ball and turns around to the outfielders to tell him, hey, go back, keep going back. You know, you know. I've done that. I've played slow pitch softball. I was, well, yeah. I was pretty great. And, you know, some, some of those guys, you go home, you go turn around and say, Back up, back up. You always want to be that batter, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, it, Not the one where they say, come no, in, yeah. hey, come hey, in. Hey, come in close. <laughs> I was never that guy, of course. Uh, yeah, that was yeah. me. Uh, that was right. <laughs> so they were t- the pitcher would say, back up, back up, you know, and these kids would go out of their field into the field next to them that already had a game going on, right? Wow. And they would stop that game just to watch the babe hit. And when he did, he would hit it over their heads. Oh, my gosh. As a kid, you know, as a teenager, just knock it smack dab out of the park. I'm guessing that he had one approach to batting, and that was to swing the bat as hard as he possibly could. Yeah, you see, it's it's interesting you say that. This was the time in baseball, for those of you who aren't big baseball fans, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I love this sport. Back in that time, the go-to was a flat level pitch. You wanted to get it kind of into the outfield, flat, let it roll. It it was hard to defend, Mm. right? Get on first base, get on second base, whatever Mm -hmm. it was. Babe changed that because he started swinging low to high, trying to hit it over the fence, and he could smack the heck out of the ball. Wow. And so when you say he swung as hard as he he could, he did, but he he had the strength to knock the stitches out of the ball. Oh, my gosh. So Babe was a baseball star. At the school, but what about his faith? Was he prayerful? Did he go to mass? Like, what was that kind of like? You know, being a part of the school, they went to mass every Sunday. It wasn't an everyday ordeal for them. It was an every Sunday, and he went faithfully. You know, he was baptized when he was born, and he was baptized again at the school. And so, uh, you know, it, it was an everyday part of his life. And Brother Matthias, being such a good 
model and hero to babe. He modeled that and wanted to, to find that. And he found this faith through him and throughout his entire life, you can see him constantly going back to brother Matthias, mm. you know, searching for, for his faith, ser- searching for kind of that, that foundation that, that he's looking for. You know, the story goes that he would always, or could always find forgiveness through confession, the three, our fathers and three hell Marys and $50 <laughs> bill left in the collection basket. This was something that he would talk about, about, you know, when he would lose his way, he knew that he could find it again by going back to a church, finding a priest, going to confession and being forgiven for his sins. He knew he could find that yeah. in there. And that's how he would write his wayward path. As we go, he hasn't hit his wayward path by any means. He is a young man, has a faith, is strong in his faith, and is enjoying playing baseball at the St. Mary's Industrial School for wayward boys and the rest of the name. And incorrigible use. And incorrigible use. They sign up for this game with a school across town. And sitting in the stands is a man who is about to change Babe's life to the extreme. Was it his dad? It was not his dad. Oh, who was it? You're going to have to tune in to episode two next week. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) This conference is well worth the entire experience, especially for the faithful looking to build the body of Christ. That's what one ministry director said after attending the Petrus Development's Rays Conference in 2023. A fundraising staff member from a different organization had this to say, I have several years of experience fundraising, and I found the conference applicable to me. I also saw new-to-fundraising people getting a lot out of it, too. There is literally something for everyone here. In 2024, Rays, the Catholic Fundraising Conference, will be even bigger and even better. Join us on the Riverwalk in San Antonio, Texas, June 24 through 26, 2024. Rays 24 will feature outstanding speakers, great networking opportunities, and an authentically Catholic conference experience. Registration is open now. Learn more at PetrusDevelopment.com slash Rays24. That's PetrusDevelopment.com slash Rays24. The man who had never seen the potential pitcher play a game on the recommendation of a man who never had seen the potential pitcher throw a pitch offered a contract for $250 per month to the potential pitcher. The potential pitcher who never had seen a professional game, who never really had known that money could be made from playing baseball, accepted immediately. It was a grand and odd transaction all at once, and it took place on Valentine's Day, 1914. So last episode, we ended with Babe Ruth playing baseball with Brother Matthias and Brother Gilbert at the St. Mary's Industrial School for Wayward Boys. And he was playing in a game, and there was somebody in the stands, and you are going to tell us who. Yeah, absolutely. So it was Jack Dunn okay. was in the stands. He came at the recommendation of Brother Gilbert. Uh, Brother Gilbert, who said, oh, he's a heck of a pitcher. The funny thing is, Brother Gilbert had never seen a pitch. Okay. And so he shows up at a game across town, and Babe Ruth isn't pitching. He's playing catcher. And who's Jack Dunn? Jack Dunn is, he works for Baltimore, but he's really realized as a baseball genius. So he saw things that other people didn't. So when you say he worked for Baltimore, Baltimore Orioles at the time? Yeah, the Baltimore, yeah, which wasn't a major league team. It was a minor league team. So he, he comes at this recommendation, a Brother Gilbert shows up, the babe is catching 
but they only have right-handed gloves, and he's a left-handed player, which means he throws with his left hand and he catches with his right. Right-handed player catches with their left and throws with their right. Mm-hmm. So he's catching with the wrong hand and throwing with the wrong hand, yet when he's playing, Jack Dunn can see that there's something about this guy. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of it, as we keyed it up with the Peter Piper, Peter, you know, that whole thing that I was doing with the pitcher piece is he offers him a job to play baseball. That babe, I mean, he he hadn't had a whole lot of outside of St. Mary's experience. So he didn't know that you could make money playing baseball. Mm-hmm. He just enjoyed and loved playing the game. And he accepts it immediately, making $250 a month, which is quite a bit of money for somebody who has nothing yeah. to go on and earn. So something I read said that he was excited, but then kind of when the reality hit him, he was a little bit nervous. And it was really the comfort and the encouragement of Brother Matthias that had him feeling anywhere ready to go, right? Yeah, that's right. Brother Matthias and the babe, of course, had this great relationship, but it was by this encouragement that that he went and he took it. But the reality was he wasn't leaving Baltimore. It's It was his home, so he could go visit his friends and, mm. and those that were close to him at any time that he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's important kind of later on in the story whenever he moves from Baltimore to somewhere else. But um, but he got to stay close to home, and that was that was a big deal for him. But he had never ridden on – I mean, he had never been on a train. He had never slept in a hotel room. He had never really been outside of wow. St. Mary's. And he gets this amazing opportunity playing as a right-handed pitcher when he's a left-handed thrower. So how did it work out? What was that first season like with Baltimore? So he was pitching fine. Mm -hmm. He was doing well, but he wasn't doing good enough. And they actually shipped him back down a league below. Mm, The International League? Yeah, the International League. Yep. So something that I also read was that he was pretty discouraged after this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But he didn't have a whole lot of relationships in his life. Like we talked about last time, you know, his mother had died. He didn't really have a great relationship with his father. And he didn't have any visitors at the school. But Brother Matthias continued to reach out and sent him a letter that year. And in the letter, repeatedly said, you're doing fine, George. I'm really proud of you. So I think that that probably was very important to Babe Ruth at this time, just to have that relationship and that ongoing support from Brother Matthias. You know, Brother Matthias was his hero. So it could be easily said that just him saying, hey, I'm proud of you. You're doing a good job was enough of encouragement for him to, to do and come back and do well. Yeah. And so he went back up to Baltimore, started pitching some more, and started doing very well from that. But Dunn and the ball in Baltimore, they were losing money. They were, it was estimated $1,000 a day, which was a whole lot of money at that time. And he needed to sell off assets mm. to make payroll. And the only assets he had were players. And so he ended up selling Babe and a few other players to the Red Sox. And this is when he ultimately left Baltimore and went to play for the Red Sox, which was a big deal to him. He didn't want to leave mm. because that meant he would have to leave his his friend yeah. and mentor, Brother Matthias, as well as all of his friends in St. Mary's School. And, and the only town that he knew, the only home that he knew, he had to leave. And he had never done that before. It was a very scary moment in his life. So then he gets to Boston. He's playing for the Red Sox. Is he playing? Is he active? Is he doing well? What's that like? Yeah, so when he's at the Red Sox, when he starts, he's just pitching. They see that he can hit, but he's really just pitching and making his teammates mad. They, he didn't get along with his teammates. He didn't get, get along with the managers. He didn't get along with the owner, really just because he was a goofball. Not that he was <laughs> uh, doing anything at this point in time in his life that was was horrible, but yeah. he was just he was silly. There's a story about him wanting to learn how to ride horses, 
And so he uh, goes and they put him on a pony, thinking a pony would be a good thing for him to learn how to ride in or ride on for the first time. And he rides this pony into the drugstore that the rest of the team are you know, having a milkshake or a cook or whatnot. So he rides this horse, this little teeny tiny pony, and he's a big man into, mm-hmm. into this. So he was just silly, and the team just didn't like it. And this is when he got the nickname the big baboon mm. and it wasn't a, it wasn't a good nickname for him they it was it was a derogatory name that they used for him but mm-hmm. hey matt so can i ask a question yeah yeah go for it as he's getting settled into boston here and getting used to playing and is he is he meeting people making friends what's his personal life look like here so he's playing a lot of baseball being a big goofball but one day he happens to walk into a coffee shop and there's this waitress that catches his eye at a coffee shop named helen Woodford. And I'm sure the conversation in his head goes, you know what? She is a girl that I would really like to meet. Yeah, that's like John Raskob playing (laughs) the organ. That's right. Blowing the bellows. So they met, of course, and eventually got married. October 17th, 1914, they were married while he was playing with the Red Sox. He was 19, thought he was 20. She was 16. Around the same time, though, he gets married. Something huge happens, and that is he hits his first professional home run. So he's Hey-o. a pitcher, and he hits his first home run. Awesome. So as a pitcher, he's not hitting every day, right? He's only hitting the days that he pitches every fourth or fifth game. Oh, right. So when you're a pitcher, you got to rest your arm. So you're only, you know, at this time there's a rotation. He's he's every fourth game roughly. Um, and also a difference between today's game and that game is usually when you started a game, you finished a game. So you'd pitch for all nine innings. He did that most of the time, but... Um, he only hit when he pitched because that was the only time he was in the lineup. So he really wasn't swinging at the ball very often. So what was it like for Babe to hit this first home run? Was he jazzed about it? He had to be. You know, th- this game, again, we'll, we'll go back to the game. We're hitting line drives. We're not swinging outside the fence. I mean, a home run was was unheard of. The record in a season was 20 home runs in a season for a team. So having one was a big deal to to have. And so for him as a pitcher hitting every fourth day or every fourth game, this had to have been a huge game for him. Mm -hmm. Can I ask another kind of historical context question here? What does the baseball league look like at this point in time? I don't know much about baseball. Like, are there lots of teams all over the country? Are they all in the Northeast? Are they riding buses or trains to get between games? Are they playing every day? Do you have an idea of what that looked like when Babe Ruth started out? Uh, Yeah, so in 1914, there's actually three leagues. You have the American League, you have the National League, and you have the Federal League. Eight teams in each league, 24 teams total. Mostly in the Northeast and the Midwest. Um, You actually had two Boston teams, Boston Red Sox and the Boston Braves. And incidentally, in 1914, the Boston Braves won the World Series against the Philadelphia Athletics 4 to nothing. They were playing 150 games. So that's a little bit about the MLB in 1914 around this time. So as he gets started out, he's pitching. How good of a pitcher is Babe Ruth? He's really good, especially after he's traded from Baltimore into the Red Sox, and he's really focusing his craft. Ty Cobb was the best baseball player in the world at the time, and Babe Ruth could go head-to-head with Ty Cobb. Okay, so Babe is playing baseball Red Sox, uh, doing quite well, and then... The entire world changes. The Great War, World War I, is on the horizon, and it comes and it affects everybody. Yeah, so in April 1917, President Woodrow Wilson went before a joint session of Congress to request a declaration of war against Germany to enter 
World War One. So the U.S. was not a dominant military force at the time. Really, the major wars that the U.S. had been involved in was, of course, the American Revolution in the 1700s. You had the War of 1812. You had the Mexican-American War in the 1840s, the Civil War, of course. But most recently, you had this Mexican expedition. So Pancho Villa is down in Mexico causing problems. And so the U.S. sends General Jack Pershing and George Patton, and they go down to Mexico and basically go from kind of a fighting militia to more of a standing peacekeeping army. But World War I comes around. You've got the Germans, you've got the Austrians, the Hungarians, and it's pretty clear that the U.S. needs to intervene into the war. So General Pershing looks at the standing army of 108,000 men, it's the 17th largest in the world, and asks the government for a million men. But then he realizes a million men is not going to be enough, Nine days later, he revises his request and asks for three million men. This triggered a national draft, and the call went out in April in 1918, including thousands of enlistments daily and was expected to reach 100,000 men between the ages of 21 and 30. So this is kind of national, right? There's this national pride. There's this drive to be involved and to be of service to the world, and baseball was not immune. You had... Uh, A lot of the players playing baseball were of that age, between the ages of 21 and 30, Babe Ruth included. And so basically, as part of the draft, they were required to either sign up for military service. Unmarried players had to sign up for military service. They had to join their local reserve, or they had to work in a military-related factory job to help the general war efforts. So Ruth was pitching. And he wanted to continue to pitch. So, you know, it's my understanding. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Matt. But he got one of these jobs with a basically a factory, right? Yeah, he held out as long as he could. But eventually there was no there's no going around it. And, you know, before he took it and before he was called to go go to work there, there were a couple big instances that happened. One was May 5th which was all these men are leaving. They're going to the war. They're signing up themselves so that they could choose where they were going. Babe Ruth, you know, he held out, but it left baseball kind of picked over. And Mm. so we had a first baseman who got hurt, and there wasn't somebody to back him up. Babe isn't pitching that day, so he goes out as the first baseman. And this is the first time that he's actually playing a position, which might give him an opening to be able to hit every day. And he he loved it. Fantastic. That was May 5th, May 6th, the very next day. They're playing the Yankees. So here's another great, great story to go. The owners of the Yankees, the Colonels, we'll learn more about them here in a minute, are sitting next to the owner, Frazee, of the Red Sox, and they see Babe hit, and he's just cranking them. Mm -hmm. And they turn, the Colonels turn to Frazee and say, hey, I want to buy Babe Ruth. I'll give you $150,000 today to buy him. Oh, man. Frazee doesn't accept it. Okay. <laughs> but it's it's an interesting story that comes out later. And $150,000 in, was this 1918, is roughly what, about $2 million, $2 million. today? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so if you remember, we're, we've got World War One. Mm-hmm. we've got people leaving, mm-hmm. we've got baseball, mm-hmm. we've got the babe, and then 1918 hits, which we all know what happens in 1918. The... Spanish influenza. Yeah, the Spanish flu. And yeah. it ravages... Everybody. Yeah. I mean, it really kind of takes hold in the American troops that are over in Europe, especially, but many of them bring that flu home 
and end up over 600,000 people in the U.S. die alone just in 1918 from the Spanish influenza, particularly in the East Coast. So Boston, other places in Massachusetts, Baltimore, really the flu has a major effect on America and then also on baseball because you had players that were getting sick, you had fans that were getting sick, you know, you still... People are coming to see Babe Ruth. People are coming to see the Red Sox. So they're crowding into these games. And so then we have the flu spreading throughout the population just because of the excitement around baseball in some ways. Yeah. And Andrew, you know a little more about this than I do. How bad was, I mean, we're in the world of COVID right now. Right. How bad was the Spanish flu? Yeah. So the Spanish flu was uh, actually really deadly and it was particularly dangerous to three different groups of people. Children under the age of five, people in that 20 to 40 age group, and then 65 and older. So it wasn't just people that are already had comorbidities or were in poor health. I mean, the Spanish flu affected everybody. At, and worldwide, over 500 million people or a third of the globe became infected with the virus. So it was a bad deal in 1918. And the other thing is you have to remember, this is... 1918, before we really know as much as we do about viruses and about healthcare. And so a lot of people were getting sick and dying, and they didn't really know where it was coming from initially. And so um, they didn't have the the strategies and the techniques to combat this, to really suppress the virus. And so it kind of just made its way throughout the entire population. Like, like I said, 500 million, that was a third of the population on the globe at that time. Wow. So it was a big deal. It was. It sounds like it. So we've got World War One. Mm-hmm. We've got the Spanish flu. Now there's there's another piece that came in in Babe's life in 1918, and that was the death of his father. And we know that his mother had already passed away when he was 17. Right. Um, but there's a major tragedy that happens in his life. You know, he had reconnected with his father. He actually bought him a saloon, since that was what he did for a living. Mm-hmm. Bought him a saloon. His dad got remarried. Mm-hmm. But on this this day, there was a little bit of drama, some family drama mm. between that at, at his saloon. There's many stories that go around, but the basics are that, that there was a squirmish between Babe's dad, George Sr., and his brother-in-law, mm. which ultimately led to Babe's dad's death. Yikes. So this kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the last episode of just chaos surrounding Babe Ruth. His mother is constantly pregnant, constantly ill, and his siblings, are, unfortunately, are all dying. At seven years old, he's pulled off into this school for wayward boys. He really doesn't have any connection with anybody there other than Brother Matthias, and maybe as he gets older, you know, mentoring the young. And then his mother dying when he's 17. So then to reconnect with his father, only to have his father die in kind of a tragic way, just a few years later, probably had an impact on the psyche of George, right? Yeah. And his baseball career's taken off. I mean, he's yeah. doing really well yeah. at this time. So it, it's it, you're right. It's this spiral of yeah. good and really bad. Yeah. I mean, really good and really bad. Yeah. So then, what happens with the Red Sox? How's his career like there? So he continues to improve. He doesn't move strictly to the outfield or, or to the lineup on a daily basis just yet. He's still pitching, mm-hmm. um, but he's begging his manager to get him into the lineup daily because he loves to hit. I mean, that he finds his passion, which is hitting. He's a heck of a great pitcher, but his passion, of course, is in hitting. 1918, they actually move and go into the World Series with the Chicago Cubs, mm. and they win it. 
So here he is, young kid, going through all this strategy and then win the World Series, the greatest mm-hmm. game of the year, mm-hmm. greatest game of the season. So I think there's some some unique history connected to this series. So at this time, we're coming out of World War One. The country doesn't actually have a national anthem yet, but they start playing the Star Spangled Banner uh, during the seventh inning stretch at the games at this World Series, and that's where this custom begins. Wow. And then eventually the Star Spangled Banner is adopted as the national anthem in, what, 1939? 1931. 1931. So, you know, I wonder if playing it at baseball games and baseball being the national pastime actually moved that forward, right? So there's another interesting piece of history tied to this game. What's that? So historically, when they play in a world championship game, the profits, some of the profits were split among the players. Winners getting more, losers are still getting something, but not nearly as much. And they would make the announcement at the game of who got what. At this specific game, the announcer was none other than the mayor, John Honeyfitz Fitzgerald, who happens to be, anybody I know? I have no idea. When you say John Fitzgerald, I start to think of a former president. Yeah, that is his grandson. JFK was the grandson of John Honey Fitz Fitzgerald. Cool. Oh, very cool. So this is September of 1918. In November, just a couple months later of 1918, the Treaty of Versailles is announced, which officially brings to end World War One, closing the chapter on that period of American history. So now baseball players were free to return to their teams as usual for the most part? For the most part, they did come back. They did kind of re-migrate back. Some uh, weren't able to play anymore, and some were even better than when they started, but they did start filtering back into the game. Okay, so we've got Babe Ruth wins the World Series in 1918. Um, You've got players coming back. People are able to go to baseball games again. I'm guessing that... You know, baseball is pretty popular at this time. So what happens to Babe? He's hitting home runs, winning World Series, and what happens to him? Well, actually, something interesting happens. Colonel Rupert and Colonel Houston, the owners of the Yankees, go to their manager and they say, Manager, what do we need to get you so that you can make a play at the championship, that you have a chance? What do you need? And the manager says, Babe Ruth. And so the colonels look at him and say, Go get him, Tiger. (laughs) And so the story goes, they go and talk to Frazee, and Frazee says, if you want him, it's 125K. Mm. So another difference from then to now is the players were assets of the team. So if you played for them, they owned you. Mm. You couldn't go play for another team. You didn't control your contract. They could sell you, similar to that, but now it's under contract. It's Mm -hmm. a little more confusing. But back then, that's how they did it. And so he he said, I'll sell Babe to you for 125K, which is roughly $1.7 million today, Mm -hmm. which was the most ever paid for for a baseball player up to this point. Wow. But the the behind-the-scenes piece is Frazee was broke. Similar to the Orioles, he couldn't afford to keep them around anymore, and so he he had to make the trade. So this kind of leaves Frazee in an interesting place in the annals of history as the man who sold Babe Ruth, right? And it started what is referred to now as the... The curse of the great Bambino. (laughs) Right, which is where Bostonians and baseball fans alike basically said, that's why you didn't win the World Series from 1918 until eventually the curse was broken in 2004, right? Right, when they won the World Series. Yeah. But you got to look back. Babe Ruth was beginning to turn into the legend that he is now. He was a great baseball player. And so this move was 
Today, Red Sox fans, and back then Red Sox fans, are still PO'd about this. I mean, <laughs> how angry p- people were at the time yeah. cannot be understated. <laughs> cannot be overstated about how upset they were mm. to trade Babe Ruth to the, to yeah. the Yankees. And they got a steal. I mean, honestly, yeah. they stole Babe Ruth from the Red Sox. Well, I know, you know, I mean, I know a little bit about baseball. The Red Sox and the Yankees have been eternal rivals. And you got to figure that this plays into it in a big degree. Has to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Has to. So Babe goes to the Yankees first game out. He goes up to the plate, takes a swing at the ball. And the legend goes that he hits it 850 feet. (laughs) Well, pretty sure that the longest home run ever was 575 feet, which was Babe Ruth. But 850 feet is a little bit of a stretch. It it is probably a little bit of a stretch, (laughs) but I think the point that all the newspapers at the time were trying to make was that here was a man who could flat out hit the ball mm. further than anybody else that they've ever seen. Yeah. So another interesting thing whenever he went to the Yankees was that they told him that he could play in the outfield, that he wouldn't have to pitch again. Granted, he did pitch a few games because he still loved to pitch, but he never was in the lineup, so to speak, of pitching, and so he was able to hit every day. So I think that this is interesting, and I want to make a point here before we wrap up, that from my observation, it seems like Babe Ruth's career is trending upward significantly, right? Like he gets this great deal to go join the Yankees. He's hitting the long ball now. He doesn't have to pitch. He can focus on home runs, which is what he loves. But personally, it seems like this period of his life has kind of been marred by tragedy after tragedy. You know, you've got... The death of his mother, as we mentioned, when he was 17. Then the death of his father, just a couple of years later. Then you've got World War One, which is, you know, puts everything into chaos. He doesn't know if he's going to continue to be able to play baseball. You get Spanish flu, which I incidentally have, have heard that Babe Ruth went to the hospital multiple times with what they never officially diagnosed as the Spanish flu, but he was in pretty bad shape in yeah. a couple of those cases. Yeah. And so it just seems like there's kind of a lot of chaos swirling around his life. You know, he still has this relationship with Brother Matthias, but, you know, they don't see each other, right? They live in two totally different places. So I'm curious to see where this goes and how Bay balances this success in professional life and chaos in personal life. Yeah, it's it's amazing because you're right, up and down, mm. and they're going to continue going the same direction. Okay. I think that's great because we're going up and we're going down in both both forms of, of his life. But the great Bambino from this point forward would go from great to legend to almost godlike. He would do things that people thought were impossible. Then the next day he would surpass what he did the day before. Gentlemen, I want you guys to buckle up. We are about to go into the world of unbelief from what he did. And what's that? You're going to have to wait and see. Can't wait. Is your organization looking to construct a new building, add more staff, or grow your programming with a capital campaign? Let Petrus Development guide you through this transformative journey. As a Teach to Fish organization, we empower you not only for today, but for a sustainable future. Our services include comprehensive campaign preparation and management. We'll craft your campaign's identity, plan events, and design compelling materials. Plus, we assist with major gift solicitations, identifying key donors, and coaching your team for success. But it doesn't stop there. We'll help you wrap up your campaign seamlessly, ensuring pledge fulfillment and effective stewardship. We'll even guide your transition into an increased annual fund, ensuring your success 
doesn't just end with the campaign. At Petrus Development, we're not just consultants. We're partners in your mission. Let's create something extraordinary together. Are you ready to make your dreams a reality? Sign up for a free 30-minute consultation to explore how Petrus Development's campaign services can elevate your organization. Discover the difference at PetrusDevelopment.com campaign. Your dream of impact awaits. Let's make it a reality together. Visit PetrusDevelopment.com campaign. As the 1922 season started for Ruth, he came out of training camp swinging. The Sultan of Swat clocked 11 home runs for the month of May, a major league record for a month, and 13 for June, breaking his own record. He hit balls off facades and over fences that had never been reached. He hit three home runs in a day against the Senators. In Chicago, he hit a home run that coincided with a loud thunderclap. There were still 61 games left when he broke the home run record with number 30 on July 20th, 1922. All right, Matt, so we're back with Babe Ruth. It's 1922. He's with the Yankees. He's gone through this progression of the Baltimore Orioles to the Boston Red Sox, now with the New York Yankees launching an 86-year curse. 84-year curse. 84-year curse on the Red Sox. But it sounds like he is crushing it, literally, in New York. Yeah, he is. And and this also coincides with something that has changed in the world of baseball, and that's the ball. So they figured out a way to wind the ball a little tighter, which made it harder, but it also made it easier to hit it further. So they're engineering a more offensive game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. I mean, it was it was like this perfect storm, and Babe Ruth, this super strong, amazing hitter, was there to kind of ride this amazing wave. So what was that 1922 season like? Whew. It was a roller coaster of a year for him. He was hitting balls further than anybody in history. He was hitting them out of every park he went to. He was surpassing records of parks where previous people had hit home runs. And then he'd come back and he'd hit one over where he hit it the last time. Uh, you know, there's a story about a pitcher by the name of Alan Russell who pitched against Babe Ruth. Uh, the ball came in. He hit it out of the park. And Alan Russell suffered a stroke from the stress of having to pitch against Babe Ruth. Uh, that was actually documented by the by the doctor that it happened. So now we're going to add Stone Cold Killer to <laughs> Babe Ruth's nickname. List. Stone Cold Killer. That's great. But everybody was watching this. His teammates were just dumbfounded. Like he'd go up to bat and they were just waiting for him to do something awesome again. And then the next time, it just kept coming. You know, the Yankees broke the attendance record for that year. They were the first team to ever break over a million fans in history. Wow. So he's, he's doing all that. Also during this time, he's starting an acting career. So he's, he's acting in movies. Oh, I loved him in Sandlot. He wasn't actually in the movie Sandlot. But, no, I but, remember <laughs> seeing him in Sandlot. The Great Bambino. The Great Bambino. The, the Colossus sul- of Clout. The, the Colossus of Clout. Sultan of Swat. Yes. <laughs> he was referred George to as a she. Herman Ruth. <laughs> okay, and then on September 29th, he settles his record with hitting his 54th home run. Wow. So all this is happening. There's another thing that comes in. So we skipped it in 1918, 1919, shortly after 1918, which we all remember is this horrible year. I mean, he's dealing with war, the Spanish flu, Mm -hmm. all of this stuff is coming on. Well, the St. Mary's Industrial School, there was a fire that left much of it destroyed. Okay. 
So in this year, he went kind of on a fundraising tour to help raise money to rebuild it, which they did raise enough money to rebuild it. He went around raising money for this school, ultimately raising enough to rebuild it, hosting dinners and whatnot, and of which he gave a great bit of his wealth to help rebuild the school. Wow, that's great. So how famous was Babe Ruth at this time? There's a great story about a gentleman by the name of George Kelly in London, England. He goes with a heavy English accent to get a passport, an American passport, saying that he was an American citizen. Well, they don't believe him because of this accent. And so when he goes and asks to get a passport, they ask him a simple question to test of whether or not he truly was an American citizen or not. Mm -hmm. And the question was... Who is Babe Ruth? <laughs> he had no idea who Babe Ruth was. Clearly so not an American. <laughs> they got a big stamp that went down and denied. said, denied. Okay. All right. Great. So Babe Ruth is clearly breaking records on the baseball field. Was this biological? I mean, like, how was he doing this? Yeah. So it absolutely was. I mean, he was a giant man mm-hmm. and could swing. Well, they tested him to see, okay, what gave him his superpowers? What was it that gave the Sultan of Smash his smash? And they ultimately figured out his swing was 90% efficient, where most people's swing was only 60% efficient. His eyes were about 12% faster than the average person. His ears were 10% faster than the average person. His nerves were steadier than 499 out of 500 people meaning that he had something that came through. And obviously, he swung the bat faster and harder than anybody else. Wow. Yeah, and he's a smart guy. And he's a smart dude, yep. Okay, so the Sultan of Swat is doing pretty well on the baseball field. It's 1922, and his contract is about to be up. Is that right? Yep, it is. So what happens next? So he sits down with the colonels to renegotiate. They want to pay him $50,000 a year, but he's not coming out of there without $52,000 a year. You know how he came up with that number? It was because he wanted to be able to say that he was paid $1,000 a week. Ah, okay. This is a funny story. They couldn't agree on terms, and so finally he said, why don't we flip for it? I win, I get 52. You win, I'll accept 50. What do you say? So they flip, and guess who wins, Ren? I'm going to guess that was Babe. Babe won. (laughs) 52,000. Lucky day. The interesting thing about $52,000, though, is in today's money, that's about $564,000. If you look at the salaries of the New York Yankees today, almost every single one of them, every single one on the roster for sure, and almost every single backup is paid more than he was. And he was the (laughs) highest paid baseball player of all time at this point in time. Well, he set that train in motion, so to speak, right? Demanding those higher salaries and being willing to flip a coin for it. Yeah, absolutely. Which I'm not sure $2,000 would have really done much other than just him being able to have the bragging rights. So... He got married, correct? He was. He was married to Helen. This was the year that that Helen gave birth to Dorothy. Uh, I say gave birth. Again, this is fog coming in a little bit Mm -hmm. on that. But Dorothy was babe and Helen's daughter. Giving birth, adopted, there's fog. So so there's a little unknown in that. Birth certificate says mother was Helen, father was babe. But again, there's there's fog. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Another interesting thing that happened in 1922... Uh, At this time, they were sharing a stadium, but they built the original Yankees Stadium in New York in 1922. And interesting fact, the first pitch thrown out in the original Yankee Stadium was pitched by the governor of New York 
who was an old friend of ours from under John Raskob, Al Smith. Al Smith, hot dog. How about that? Very cool. So he threw the first pitch out in the Yankee Stadium, the house that Babe built. Is that right? The house that Babe built. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Interesting tie of two different stories we've done here. Amazing Catholics. So 1923, what happens then? Okay, so next, fast forward another year. We're going to go fast through these years, so okay. so, so bear with me. 1923, uh, the Yankees win the World Series. He is voted the MVP, mm. uh, which at the time you could only get it one time. So this was the only time he won MVP. Uh, and there's a funny story in that, and that was in Chicago. So they're playing a game. Uh, it's going into the 14th inning, and they're about to miss their train, right? We all know what it feels like when you're about to m- miss your flight. So the manager is getting stressed out about this, and he mentions to Babe that, if the game doesn't end quickly, then they're going to miss their train. And so Babe says, okay. And he goes out and he knocks one out of the park, <laughs> wins the game, and comes back and said, why didn't you tell me sooner? We could have been on the bus sooner, or been on the train sooner. That's funny. So it sounds like 1923 was a great year for the Babe and for the Yankees, but it doesn't continue that way, right? 1925 is kind of a rough year, right? Yeah, absolutely. So... We talked about this is his the trajectory of his career is going up mm. and then things behind the scenes are kind of going down. Personal life, yeah. Yeah, well his personal life is really tanking mm. in twenty three and again in twenty four at a colossal degree. And in nineteen twenty five, he hits rock bottom. This is the worst year he's ever had. He only hits twenty five home runs. Mm. Up to this point, this was the the worst number of home runs he's ever hit in the major leagues. And he's struggling with everything. Mm. I mean, he's struggling with playing baseball. He's struggling with his teammates. He's struggling at home. He's struggling with food. He's struggling with alcohol. He's struggling with addictions. So can I tell the story? Yeah, go ahead. So uh, he's not feeling well. He's having a lot of digestive problems. He's still playing great. He's batting 400, but he ends up passing out on a train station while waiting for a train. They pick him up, and he ends up passing out another time, falling over. It hits his head pretty hard, and there's actually an obituary written in London uh, because people freak out about this. It ends up being called The Bellyache Heard Around the World, which yeah. is uh, kind of a little funny, but he ends up spending a month in the hospital because of an intestinal abscess or an ulcer. Yeah. And so he spends a, a month in the hospital. He gets out, doesn't change, keeps drinking, keeps smoking, eating too much, and then I think you know what happens after that. Yeah, I do. And remember, we're saying all this when we remember the first episode, we said, when you think of Babe Ruth, what do you think of outside of baseball? Uh, this is the year that gives him the recognition of all those thoughts that you mm-hmm. had. It was, yep. it was this year. So he's sick. He's in the hospital for a month. He's also suspended multiple times throughout the season, mm. has a horrible year, finishes it and comes back and says, I've got to change. Something's got to change. And the Yankees manager actually reaches out to his good friend and hero, Brother Matthias. And Brother Matthias meets up with him. And, uh, you know, it's unknown what the conversation was had, but we can assume that he said, hey, buddy, I'm proud of what you've done, but you've screwed up. Mm-hmm. You need to pick yourself up. You need to be the babe mm. that you have the ability to be. And I feel from that conversation or from that meeting with him that this next step happened. He met a gentleman or heard about a gentleman by the name of Artie McGoverns. He was this amazing personal trainer at the time. So I used to watch The Biggest Loser and Jillian Michaels was the crazy personal trainer who yelled at everybody and told him to eat right, but ultimately got him in better shape. Yeah, that's a great example to use with Artie McGoverns because that is who he was. Uh, He told you what to eat. 
he told you what, how, what to exercise. He even sent messengers to your home in the morning to make sure you woke up and you did your exercises. They would not necessarily drag you out of bed because this was a voluntary deal, but they had their ways of encouraging you to get out of bed. Got it. You know, another interesting thing and tie back to the John Raskop season or specifically John Raskop, John Raskop was being coached by Artie McGovern's as well. So at the end of his time with Artie McGovern's, by the end of the off season, Babe Ruth was in the best shape of his life. He had had this total transformation. So as we were talking trajectory, his career is going up. It's technically plateaued at this point in time, but his personal life had tanked almost to rock bottom, if not rock bottom. Now his personal life was going up. Mm. He had been reunited with his brother, Matthias, St. Mary's school. You know, I have to think that this point in his life of forgiveness, you know, going to church, you know, we talked about earlier of three, our fathers, three home Mary's confession and a $50 bill in the collection basket. This had to have been a time that he regularly went to confession, went to feed his spiritual life because of this huge transformation that he had. Yeah, later in life, he actually writes an article for Guideposts. And in that, he says, even throughout all this time, I strayed from the church, but I don't think I forgot my religious training. I just overlooked it. I prayed often and hard, but the swift tempo of living shoved religion into the background. And he even talked about he had a big window in his apartment overlooking New York City where he used to kneel and pray, even during those years when he was drinking and partying and womanizing and everything else. So, you know, and I mean, truthfully, that's fairly relatable to many people, right? It's, you know, you have good days, you have bad days, you have good times, you have bad times. His phase was pretty long and pretty public, but I think that that training and that support that he got from Brother Matthias and from St. Mary's, it planted those seeds in his life. Yeah, I, I really do. I think this is the point where, you know, he was not only being drug out by those who loved him, but also he had grabbed himself and said, hey, enough's enough. Mm. Okay, let's go kind of quick here. So 1926, very next season, he's in the best shape of his life. 47 homers. Lou Gehrig joined the Yankees and they go to the World Series. So year before, they're horrible. They're way out of there. Now they're going to the World Series. We're in the last game of the season. If the Yankees lose, they're done. Bottom of the ninth, two outs. Babe Ruth's on first after his single, and Babe Ruth still second base, and the pitcher throws him out. <laughs> so they lose the World Series because Babe Ruth was thrown out at second base. You win some and you lose some, right? You, you do. But fast forward 1927, he breaks his home run record of 59, and he hits 60 in that mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. And that, year, that is the year that they win the World Series. In 1928, 54 homers. Again, they win the World Series. 1929, uh, it's another, another year of, for Babe Ruth. His wife, Helen, died. She died of smoke inhalation. And it was a, it was a tough loss for Babe mm. in that. There's a pretty public story where it talks about when Helen is on her deathbed, Babe is sitting by her holding his rosary beads praying and just obviously very sad about this. But, you know, like we're talking about, he walked away from his faith. He overlooked his religion, but that didn't mean he forgot it, right? He kept those rosary beads. He continued to pray in front of the window. Um, He kept up contact with Brother Matthias. So, you know, he knew that there was something bigger in life than baseball, which is kind of crazy, but it was still a part of his life all along. Yeah. Okay, so we've got 1930, 49 homers, 1931, 46 homers. And then in 1931, 
during the season of his 46 homer, he hits his 600 home run. Mm. Just, I mean, these are just, at this time, this was unheard of. Teams take years to hit 600, yeah. and he did it by 1931. So 1931, we're in the in the middle of the Great Depression. Did that affect the baseball players at all? It did affect the baseball players at the time. They all had to take pay cuts, and they had to do what it what was needed so that they can continue the game of baseball. Fewer people were going to games. Fewer people could afford to go to games, and so it did affect at least attendance and what what have you. But it also affected salaries, of course. But the the whole picture was they still were getting paid and they still were playing baseball. So 1932 is one of the most iconic moments in all of sports history. Tell us what happens in Game 3 of the World Series against the Chicago Cubs. So I've got to admit, this is the moment I've been waiting for, Andrew. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this is a story I've been wanting to tell since we started Babe Ruth. All right, well, don't blow it. Let's hear it. Okay, so let's take a few steps back. The Cubs have a shortstop who uh, was kind of in this relationship that was not it was going very badly, uh, so much so that he broke up with her, and she wrote a note and took a gun to his house and shot him twice because, yeah, it, it's a bad story. Anyways, he wasn't able to play in the World Series, but they needed a shortstop. So they go and they hire a guy by the name of Mark Koenig, which was a former Yankee player, to come in as a shortstop, great friends with the Yankees. And if you remember, I talked about the shares of the World Series, how you get certain shares Mm -hmm. and and what have you. Well, the team voted that he only got a half share, so he got shorted. I mean, they really took advantage of this new guy coming in. Well, the Yankees, who were still friends with him, were mad because Mm. the Cubs had shorted him. So game three of the series, it's in Wrigley Field, okay? It's an away game for the Yankees, and the Cubs fans are just tearing into him. But the Yankees are loving it. They're giving them back. I mean, it's this back and forth between players and fans and and what have you, just over and over. I mean, it was it was a dream of a place to play. It's getting a little chippy, as they it's, say now. It's getting very chippy. Mm-hmm. And so Babe comes up to the plate, and the dugout is yelling obscenities at him. The fans are yelling obscenities about it, and he just strolls on up to home, pulls his bat back, pitch comes, strike one. Fans are just going crazy, right? So he shakes his finger and just says, hey, this is just one. Second pitch comes, strike two. Fans are going crazy again. They think they're about to strike out this guy, right? Right. Just going, I mean, Babe Ruth is about to get struck out in Wrigley Field in this chippy, as you said, game. And so Babe looks around and he picks up his hands and he points to center field, puts it down, cranks it back. Next pitch comes, clack. And the ball flies <laughs> over center field. <laughs> he called his shot. Mm-hmm. It's called the hit that was heard around the world. I'm loving it. And I think that that seems very much the personality of Babe Ruth at this time. Yeah. Right? Like he's, you know, he's not going to back down. He's not going to give in to anybody. And so when you come at him, he's going to tell you exactly what he's going to do. And then he's going to go do it. Yeah. Again, thinking Sandlot. <laughs> There's that part in the movie he's calling a shot, yeah, right? I remember, yeah, yeah. Right, right. How many times did kids yeah. since that hit have they tried to call their own shots? None of them ever made it, or very few of them ever actually called their own mm, shot. But yeah. it was in in replay to this very moment, which was a fantastic time. Yankees won the series and are again world champions. Great. So is that how he finishes his career with the Yankees? 
It's not. So he's got a couple more seasons in there, a few more homers, 1934, which is really his last good season as a baseball player. He hits number 700. At the end of that season, to try to save face, the Colonels are realizing he's he's aging. He's not able to do what he was able to do when he was younger. I mean, he's 40 years old at this point in time, or close to 40, even though he thinks he's a year older. And the Colonels decide, hey, we want to save face on this situation. We can't just make Babe retire. So they sell him, since he doesn't own him his own rights to play baseball, to the Braves. The Braves take him. In 1935... He doesn't have a good year. Mm. Uh, he hits 14 more homers that season, but ultimately doesn't finish the season in the lineup. And he retires. He finishes the game. And now he's sitting there wondering, you know, what's next? Am I going to manage? Am I going to play golf? What am I going to do next? And I can only imagine as somebody who's their entire life has been focused and, and surrounded by baseball, what that moment was like to figure out, okay, what now? Am I supposed to just go home and start farming the land or am I supposed to become a banker or, or what, what do I do? Mm. Had to have been a really horrible time for him. So what does he do? Tune in next episode. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> At Petrus Development, we know that almost nobody goes to school to learn the ins and outs of development and fundraising. It's just not something that comes naturally to most of us. But fear not, because we're here to help you on your fundraising journey with the Petrus Annual Manual. The Petrus Annual Manual is a 12-month program designed to turbocharge your fundraising efforts. We connect your organization with a dedicated and experienced fundraising coach who will guide you every step of the way. Here's what you can expect. Access to online, on-demand training videos and how-to guides that show you exactly what to do and how to do it. Dozens of samples and templates for newsletters, appeal letters, and more so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Twice monthly phone or video calls with your very own experienced fundraising coach. And a comprehensive development calendar that gives you a plan for development activities to keep your fundraising efforts on track. It's all about building a plan and then working the plan. Think of it this way. If Petrus Development's BOAT program helps lay the foundation for a strong development program, the annual manual is where you build the structure of a robust fundraising office. And here's the exciting part. What will your organization be prepared to do upon completing the annual manual? You'll be on the path to financial stability with a solid annual fund in place. That means you'll be ready to take on significant growth in fundraising with a pipeline of donors and prospects to approach for major gifts. So if you're ready to transform your organization and make a lasting impact, Visit PetrusDevelopment.com slash annual manual today to learn more about the Petrus Annual Manual. It's time to supercharge your fundraising efforts and expand your organization's impact one step at a time. That's PetrusDevelopment.com slash annual manual. Babe Ruth retired as a career record holder in home runs, RBIs, total bases, walks, strikeouts, on-base percentage, and slugging percentage, as well as the single-season record holder in home runs, total bases, walks, and slugging. With all this success on the field, the only thing that he loved more than baseball was giving back to the youth what was never given to him. So, Matt, Babe Ruth is retired, done with baseball. What was retirement like for him? Well... He wasn't quite done with baseball. Right after retirement, he tried to manage, uh, which that never actually panned out. So really his retirement from baseball was 
almost like everybody else's retirement from their job, there's a lot of golf. He said if there wasn't golf, he'd be really bored in retirement. <laughs> okay. He still acted a little bit, but he really just kind of enjoyed life with his family, and he enjoyed the retirement days. Mm-hmm. Was he living in New York still? Did he go back to Baltimore or Boston? No, he he stayed up in New York. So he still he loved to travel, so he still did that quite a bit. Interesting thing about retirement, so he he retired, went and did a uh, a tour in Japan playing baseball, which that piece isn't important. The important part is though that he had to get a passport to go from the US to Japan. And when he did, he had to produce his birth certificate. Did they ask him if he knew who Babe Ruth was? Uh, they didn't ask him if he, if he knew who Babe Ruth was, but what they did realize that is that what he thought was his birthday wasn't actually his birthday. Oh, he finally figures he, it out. He huh? finally figures out that he is a year younger than he always thought that he was. I think that's hilarious. Yeah. So he enjoys his retirement. However, in 1946, he starts having some health issues. He starts having headaches, his stomach, his voice... Uh, and at one point in time, the left side of his face is starting to swell to the point even so that his his eye, you can see out of his eye because it was swollen so much. And he checked himself into a hospital November 26th, 1946, 11 years after his retirement. And they found out that Babe Ruth, the Colossus of SWAT, had cancer and that he uh, it was pretty advanced. You know, while he was in the hospital, he received numerous, numerous amounts of fan mail. And one in particular was from a young seventh grader by the name of Mike Quinlan. It was a short letter, but it it went like this. Dear babe, everybody in the seventh grade is pulling and praying for you. I am enclosing a miraculous medal, which if you wear will make you better. Your pal, Mike Quinlan. P.S. I know this will be your 61st homer. You'll hit it. That miraculous medal that he received from that seventh grader, Mm -hmm. He put it on and he never took it off. That's a cool story about the Miraculous Medal. Ren, can you explain to the listeners what a Miraculous Medal is? Yeah, it's actually a medal essentially given to St. Catherine Labore through a couple of visions of Mary back in 1830. Uh, it was approved by the church as a devotion in 1832. Uh, it said if you keep the medal on you and pray the prayer that's inscribed on it, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us to have recourse to thee. If you wear it on your neck and pray that devotion, you'll be under the protection of Mary, the mother of God, and she'll pray for you, and graces will be abundantly bestowed upon those who have confidence. Very cool. So I also read that he got a bottle of water from Lourdes, right? He did, yeah. Yeah, he actually he rubbed it all over his body. Uh, we know he was kind of a goober, so mm-hmm. we don't know if he was doing that to be funny or if he thought maybe that would help heal him. I'm hoping he thought it would help heal him, but it, it, he could have been being a goober at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Babe Ruth is in the hospital recovering from cancer. He's got the miraculous medal. He's got the bottle of water from Lourdes. What ends up happening? You know, it was at this time that he became good friends with Father Coffin, who was a priest who would come visit him in the hospital. And as they talked, they realized that Father Coffin spent some time at St. Mary's, the same school, with mm. his brother for a little while, which made Babe Ruth and him hit it off quite a bit. On July 21st, he received last rites as well as his final uh, confession. Mm. But at this point in time, the cancer was everywhere. It had metastasized. There was no coming back from it. This wouldn't be his 61st home run. This would be the bottom of the ninth, three strikes. This is maybe reminiscent of Babe Ruth stealing second base in that World Series where he's about to be struck out by cancer. Mm. And finally, on August 16th at 8 and 1 p.m., the Caliph of Clout, the Monster of Mash, the Home Run King, 
the Sultan of Swat, the Bam, the Big Bam, the Bambino, the Babe, George Herman Ruth, 53 years old, died in his sleep. And then a few days later on August 19th, 1948, in New York, Cardinal Francis Spellman, again a, a tie back to John Raskob, celebrated his funeral mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral. So we haven't spent a lot of time on Babe and his giving back. We've mentioned, you know, he really cared about the youth of St. Mary's, but what do we know about his philanthropy? Yeah, so we've talked about a little bit about fog. Uh, we're going to release some of the fog here. So what was publicized at the time was not so much about what Babe did on his, in his personal life, but it was more so of what he did on the field. And so what we do know is that the Babe constantly would play pickup games. He would go visit people in the hospital. But throughout his career, he found himself drawn to kids as we started this episode, kids who, who didn't have what he, who were in the same position that he was whenever he was coming up at St. Mary's. They didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. And he felt it was his mission in life to give back. The number of shoes that the Babe Ruth gave away <laughs> in his lifetime, they can't figure out the number. It could be an astounding mm-hmm. amount of money that he spent just to make sure that kids had shoes on their feet. That reminds me of our Catherine Drexel season, Catherine's stepmother saying, never let the poor have cold feet. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, right. You know, that was that was a big thing to him, and it was really kids. He he would visit kids in hospitals that were sick with cancer. But what we do know is this lifetime of giving back, giving back to Brother Matthias, giving back to his dad, giving back to all the people around him, but especially to these kids. I mean, mm-hmm. it was the kids that mattered so much to him. Mm-hmm. And he would be so disappointed in himself when he would disappoint the kids. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there was a great story about somebody who was sick and as his uh, request to Babe Ruth was hit a home run and he went out and hit two home runs the next day. You know, the other thing with Babe Ruth too is he did, before his death, he created a foundation. A foundation that's purpose was to help poor families that didn't have food and didn't have shelter. Mm. And so that was something that he wanted to leave behind, Mm -hmm. the Babe Ruth Foundation. Another thing that he was active in was in World War II, he was very involved with the Red Cross. So he was also fairly involved with the church later in life. He joined the Knights of Columbus in South Boston. They actually sponsored a Babe Ruth Day at Fenway Park, and Ruth returned the favor by knocking the ball out of the park and tying baseball's home run record, which was 27 homers in that year. And then after his 1919 sale to the New York Yankees, Ruth stayed a member of the Boston chapter, and in 2007, a $10 check Ruth sent to the Knights in 1938 was auctioned off for more than $4,000, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that is that is great. It's interesting that they never cashed the check. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Matt, there's really no doubt that the two things the babe loved most in life were baseball and making kids happy. He had a letter at the end of his life, at the very end of his life, that was published and talks a lot about his state of mind and what he was hoping would be his legacy. Uh, you want to read some of that letter? Yeah, it's it's a wonderful letter. It's it's quite long. We'll try to put it on our Instagram so that listeners can read it. But here's just a couple excerpts. This isn't chronological order. We pulled a couple pieces and put them together, but we wanted to share these two with you. And this was, again, written from Babe Ruth. As I look back, those moments when I let the kids down, they were my worst. I guess I was so anxious to enjoy life to the fullest that I forgot the rules or ignored them. Once in a while, you can get away with it, but not for long. 
When I broke training, the effects were felt by myself and by the ball team, and even by the fans. While I drifted away from the church, I did have my own altar, a big window of my New York apartment overlooking the city lights. Often I would kneel before that window and say my prayers. I would feel quite humble then. I'd ask God to help me not make such a big fool of myself and pray that I'd measure up to what he expected of me. Another excerpt from that letter was uh, he was at End Times and one of his friends were with him. And this is how that conversation goes. And he writes this in the letter of how it went. They're going to operate in the morning, babe, Paul said. Don't you think you ought to put your house in order? I didn't dodge the long, challenging look in his eyes. I knew what he meant. For the first time, I realized that death might strike me out. I nodded, and Paul got up, called in a chaplain, and I made a full confession. I'll return in the morning and give you Holy Communion, the chaplain said. But you don't have to fast. I'll fast, I said. I didn't even have a drop of water. So I think that's a really powerful letter, and you know I've read the whole thing, and he was very incredibly heartfelt in that, um, and really reflective on his life and what it all meant. So you know, as we close out this season on Babe Ruth, the obvious question is: Was he a holy donor? Ren, what do you think? When you look at the seasons that we've done so far, it's hard to compare him necessarily to a, a Catherine Drexel, right, or Danny Thomas. The the scale of the giving is a little bit different and maybe even the scale of the holiness. Although I think the our tendency, my first tendency at least, is to judge them based on the holiness of their whole life, right? Like, did they not make any mistakes through their life? In this case, he did make some big mistakes kind of throughout his, especially during his working life, right? Throughout his life, he had that pull to keep coming back to the church, keep going back to confession, uh, and try to make right. And at the end, he did have kind of that full last reconversion to the church. He made his full confession had lost rights and, you know, finished his life out strong, right? And and he always had that heart for kids. He gave a lot to kids, to the Red Cross. And so I think based on those circumstances, I would say, yes, he is a holy donor. And he may be one of the more relatable holy donors to a lot of people that have had a similar life trajectory. Right? Like they've made big mistakes, but they're not lost causes. They're still working on, on building back that holiness and coming back to the church stronger and stronger over time. And yeah, I think so. Matt, what do you think? You know, I've, I feel that this was a pleasure to be able to share Babe's story. I think he does get a lot of embellishment on the bad stuff and not enough in the good. Not saying that he, we should forget the bad and only do the good, but I think it, there should be a fair shot at both. And, and I've, it's been a privilege to, to share both sides of it. You know, we share this last confession that he received and and last rites that he received. The priest who was there actually got a lot of mail because of this, Mm. saying, thank you for doing that, going out of the way to thank him for taking the time to spend with Babe. But then there was the other side. And this side kind of pisses me off. Excuse my (laughs) French. I I get a little heated about this. But people who said that, hey, he he didn't deserve it. Like, he didn't deserve last rites. And... That frustrates me knowing that God died on the cross for us so that we could have eternal life, that we could come back to him. At no point in our life are we not worthy to receive that forgiveness from him. And a statement that he wasn't worthy to receive forgiveness from God when he was asking for it states that none of us would be worthy if we follow it. We're all sinners. I mean, Ren, I love what you said. We're all sinners in that sense. 
But it's that death on the cross that Christ gave us that forgiveness. It was a free gift that we choose to have. And so, again, okay, I'm going on a tangent about the end of life and whether or not he was a holy donor or not. But the truth of this is we're all on this journey. Like you said, Ren, we screw up, we pick ourselves up, and we go. But ultimately, our, our destination is heaven. Our destination is holiness. And our path is pointing us to that way. And undoubtedly to me, at the end of his life, he had made that full confession. He had realized, I screwed up. I can't do this alone. I need a savior. And Christ is that savior. Hmm. Please forgive me. So is he holy in that sense? Yeah. Is he a donor? Um, again, not on the same level as Catherine Drexel or John Raskob, but none of us can be on that level, really. That's on a totally different playing field there. But I think that he spent his entire life giving back what was given to him. And to me, that's a donor. Yeah, I think that a couple of things come out to me when I think about this. So I didn't really realize the tough upbringing that Babe Ruth had. I mean, his childhood was really pretty rough. It said, uh, something I read said that before the age of eight, he had smoked his first cigar and had his first glass of whiskey. He was constantly in trouble with the law. He was constantly breaking out of St. Mary's and would try school and would get kicked out and have to go back. And he really struggled with this and didn't have that great relationship with his parents that so many of our other holy donors have had. And yet then when he was a baseball player, there were countless stories of him hanging out outside of games for hours just to sign autographs and just to make the kids that came to watch him enjoy their day and have a great day. Uh, there's never any reports of him being dismissive of kids, of him literally giving him the shirt off of his back if it was available to give. And then certainly with buying shoes, like you mentioned, with helping out at St. Mary's and helping out with a lot of a number of different Catholic schools and boys schools and youth programs. So it wasn't this, he makes this confession and then all of a sudden he puts all of his wealth into a foundation at the end of his life. And not saying that other, our other holder donors have done that, but it wasn't just this desperation move. It was part of his fabric to be generous and to give back. And, you know, he struggled with his faith and he struggled with how to live that, but he acknowledged that and he recognized it throughout his life and at the end. So I really enjoy this season doing this one, certainly in the context of some of the other ones that we've done, just because it forces us to ask the question, right? It forces us to say, who are we to make those determinations about who's holy and are they holy enough? And could they be holier? And I mean, that's, that's a part of it. And, you know, have they given enough and should they give more? And those are questions that we all as humans want to ask, but I think that it's a healthy exercise that we would do that in the context of this podcast. And so, you know, maybe we've made our listeners think a little bit, certainly have given me pause to think a little bit more about this topic. And so I think that this was a great season to do. And in my eyes, yeah, Babe Ruth was a holy donor. And I think that he's worthy of being put into the catalog of our other holy donors that we've talked about. So you mentioned this fun exercise of going through. So I, I'd like to put it back on to our audience and our listeners. Join us on Instagram. Let us know about Babe Ruth. Was he a holy donor? Was he not? Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio and Back Row Media. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions, graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram at holydonors. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world.
Why did the Scarecrow win an award? Mm, he was outstanding in his field. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he's in this maximum security prison, also known as St. Mary's Industrial School for Orphans, Delinquents, Incorrigibles, and Wayward Boys. I was trying to make it an acronym, and it didn't come out that way. <laughs> no, I think you nailed it. You did, did a great job. Samoa, Samoa. <laughs> what does Babe Ruth and roughly 100,000 antelopes have in common? No idea. They're both ballpark figures. <laughs> Just, oh my God. What do you call a man who can't stand? Uh, Eileen. Neil. Neil. <laughs> Uh, what do you call a woman with one leg? Eileen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, abs- hey, I'm not going to say absolutely. Now it's turning into my new amazing. <laughs> Why was Cinderella taken out of the baseball game by her manager? Why? Because she ran away from the ball. <laughs> How come she was so bad at baseball? Why? Because she had a pumpkin for a coach. <laughs> but I'm... I mean, we're about to do a whole season without Thaddeus, and every time we're like, Thaddeus is here, and people are like, who's, who's that? a Thaddeus? <laughs> but it's fun coming up with where, where Thaddeus is. What happens when a frog's car dies? Mm, no, me either. You need to give it a jump. If that doesn't work, then you need to get it towed. <laughs> <laughs>